Section 25 The Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Sinner Written by Himself by James Hogg This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Thus far have my history and confessions been carried. I must now furnish my Christian readers with the key to the process, management, and winding up of the whole matter, which I propose, by the assistance of God, to limit to a very few pages. Chester's, July 27th, 1712 My hopes and prospects are a wreck. My precious journal is lost, consigned to the flames. My enemy hath found me out, and there is no hope of peace or rest for me on this side the grave. In the beginning of last week, my fellow lodger came home, running in a great panic, and told me a story of the devil having appeared twice in the printing house, assisting the workmen at the printing of my book, and that some of them had been frightened out of their wits. That the story was told to Mr. Watson, who till that time had never paid any attention to the treaties, but who, out of curiosity, began and read a part of it, and thereupon flew into a great rage, called my work a medley of lies and blasphemy, and ordered the whole to be consigned to the flames, blaming his foreman and all connected with the press for letting a work go so far that was enough to bring down the vengeance of heaven on the concern. If ever I shed tears through perfect bitterness of spirit, it was at that time. But I hope it was more for the ignorance and folly of my countrymen than the overthrow of my own hopes. But my attention was suddenly aroused to other matters, by Linton mentioning that it was said by some in the office the devil had inquired for me. Surely, you are not such a fool, said I, as to believe that the devil really was in the printing office. Oh, good bless you, sir. Saw him myself, gave him a nod and a good day. Rather a gentlemanly personage. Green Circassian hunting coat and turban, like a foreigner. Has the power of vanishing in one moment, though. Rather a suspicious circumstance, that. Otherwise, his appearance not much against him. If the former intelligence thrilled me with grief, this did so with terror. I perceived who the personage was that had visited the printing house in order to further the progress of my work. And at the approach of every person to our lodgings, I from that instant trembled every bone lest it should be my elevated and dreaded friend. I could not say I had ever received an office at his hand that was not friendly, yet these offices had been of a strange tendency, 
and the horror with which I now regard him was unaccountable to myself. It was beyond description, conception, or the soul of man to bear. I took my printed sheets, the only copy of my unfinished work existing, and on pretense of going straight to Mr. Watson's office, decamped from my lodgings at Portsburg a little before the fall of evening, and took the road towards England. As soon as I got clear of the city, I ran with a velocity I knew not before I had been capable of. I flew out of the way towards Dalkeith so swiftly that I often lost sight of the ground, and I said to myself, Oh! that I had the wings of a dove, that I might fly to the farthest corners of the earth, to hide me from those against whom I have no power to stand. I traveled all that night and the next morning, exerting myself beyond my power, and about noon the following day, I went into a yeoman's house, the name of which was Ellenshaw's, and requested of the people a couch of any sort to lie down on, for I was ill and could not proceed on my journey. They showed me to a stable loft where there were two beds, on one of which I laid me down, and falling into a sound sleep, I did not awake till the evening. That other three men came from the fields to sleep in the same place, one of whom laid down beside me, at which I was exceedingly glad. They fell all sound asleep, and I was terribly alarmed at a conversation I overheard somewhere outside the stable. I could not make out a sentence, but trembled to think I knew one of the voices at least, and rather than not be mistaken, I would that any man had run me through with a sword. I fell into a cold sweat, and once thought of instantly putting hand to my own life as my only means of relief. May the rash and sinful thought be in mercy forgiven. When I heard, as it were, two persons at the door, contending, as I thought, about their right and interest in me. That the one was forcibly preventing the admission of the other. I could hear distinctly, and their language was mixed with something dreadful and mysterious. In an agony of terror, I awakened my snoring companion with great difficulty, and asked him, in a low whisper, who these were at the door. The man lay silent and listening till fairly awake, and then asked if I heard anything. I said I heard strange voices contending at the door. Then I can tell you, lad, it has been something neither good nor canny, said he. It's no for nathing that our horses are snorking that gate. For the first time, I remarked that the animals were snorting and rearing as if they wished to break through the house. The man called to them by their names and ordered them to be quiet but they raged still the more furiously. He then roused his drowsy companions, 
who were alike alarmed at the panic of the horses, all of them declaring that they had never seen either Miles or Jolly start in their lives before. My bedfellow and another then ventured down the ladder, and I heard one of them saying, Lord, be we us! What can be I the house? The sweat's rinning off the poor beast like water. They agreed to sally out together, and if possible to reach the kitchen and bring a light. I was glad at this, but not so much so when I heard the one man saying to the other in a whisper, I wish that stranger man may be canny enough. God kens, said the other. It does nay look unco weel. The lad in the other bed, hearing this, set up his head in manifest affright as the other two departed for the kitchen. And I believed he would have had been glad to have been in their company. This lad was next the ladder, at which I was extremely glad. For had he not been there, the world should not have induced me to wait the return of these two men. They were not well gone before I heard another distinctly enter the stable and come towards the ladder. The lad, who was sitting up in his bed, intent on the watch, called out, What's that there? Walker, is that you? Prudy, I say, is it you? The darkling intruder paused for a few moments and then came towards the foot of the ladder. The horses broke loose, and snorting and neighing for terror, raged through the house. In all my life I never heard so frightful a commotion. The being that occasioned it all now began to mount the ladder towards our loft, on which the lad in the bed next the ladder sprung from his couch, crying out, The... Lady, preserve us! What can it be? With that, he sped across the loft and by my bed, praying lustfully all the way. And throwing himself from the other end of the loft into a manger, he darted, naked as he was, through among the furious horses and making the door that stood open. In a moment he vanished and left me in the lurch. Powerless with terror, and calling out fearfully, I tried to follow his example. But not knowing the situation of the places with regard to one another, I missed the manger and fell on the pavement in one of the stalls. I was both stunned and lamed on the knee, but terror prevailing, I got up and tried to escape. It was out of my power, for there were divisions and cross-divisions in the house, and mad horses smashing everything before them, so that I knew not so much as on what side of the house the door was. Two or three times was I knocked down by the animals, but all the while I never stinted crying out with all my power. At length, I was seized by the throat and hair of the head and dragged away. I wist not whither. My voice was now laid, and all my powers, both mental and bodily, 
totally overcome. And I remember no more till I found myself lying naked on the kitchen table of the farmhouse, and something like a horse's rug thrown over me. The only hint that I got from the people of the house on coming to myself was that my absence would be good company, and that they had got me in a woeful state, one which they did not choose to describe or hear described. As soon as daylight appeared, I was packed about my business, with the hisses and execrations of the yeoman's family, who viewed me as a being to be shunned, ascribing to me the visitations of that unholy night. Again was I on my way southwards, as lonely, hopeless, and degraded a being as was to be found on life's weary round. As I limped out the way, I wept, thinking of what I might have been and what I really had become. Of my high and flourishing hopes when I set out as the avenger of God on the sinful children of men. Of all that I had dared for the exaltation and progress of the truth and it was with great difficulty that my faith remained unshaken. Yet was I preserved from that sin, and comforted myself with the certainty that the believer's progress through life is one of warfare and suffering. My case was indeed a pitiful one. I was lame, hungry, fatigued, and my resources on the very eve of being exhausted. Yet these were but secondary miseries, and hardly worthy of a thought compared with those I suffered inwardly. I not only looked around me with terror at every one that approached, but I was become a terror to myself, or rather, my body and soul were becoming terrors to each other. And had it been possible, I felt as if they would have gone to war. I dared not look at my face in a glass, for I shuddered at my own image and likeness. I dreaded the dawning, and trembled at the approach of night. Nor was there one thing in nature that afforded me the least delight. In this deplorable state of body and mind was I jogging on towards the Tweed by the side of the small river called a Len, when, just at the narrowest part of the glen, whom should I meet full in the face but the very being in all the universe of God would the most gladly have shunned. I had no power to fly from him, neither durst I, for the spirit within me, accuse him of falsehood and renounce his fellowship. I stood before him like a condemned criminal, staring him in the face, ready to be winded, twisted, and tormented as he pleased. He regarded me with a sad and solemn look. How changed was now that majestic countenance to one of haggard despair! 
changed in all save the extraordinary likeness to my late brother, a resemblance which misfortune and despair tended only to heighten. There were no kind greetings passed between us at meeting, like those which passed between the men of the world. He looked on me with eyes that froze the currents of my blood, but spoke not till I assumed as much courage as to articulate. You hear! I hope you have brought me tidings of comfort. Tidings of despair, said he. But such tidings as the timid and the ungrateful deserve, and have reason to expect. You are an outlaw and a vagabond in your country, and a high reward is offered for your apprehension. The enraged populace have burnt your house, and all that is within it, and the farmers on the land bless themselves at being rid of you. So ferret with everyone who puts his hand to the great work of man's restoration to freedom, and draweth back contemning the light that is within him. Your enormities cause me to leave you to yourself for a season, and you see what the issue has been. You have given some evil ones power over you, who long to devour you, both soul and body, and it has required all my power and influence to save you. Had it not been for my hand, you had been torn in pieces last night, but for once I prevailed. We must leave this land forthwith, for here there is neither peace, safety, nor comfort for us. Do you now and here pledge yourself to one who has so often saved your life and has put his own at stake to do so? Do you pledge yourself that you will henceforth be guided by my counsel and follow me whithersoever I choose to lead. I have always been swayed by your counsel, said I, and for your sake, principally, am I sorry that all our measures have proved abortive. But I hope still to be useful in my native isle. Therefore, let me plead that your highness will abandon a poor despised and outcast wretch to his fate, and betake you to your realms, where your presence cannot but be greatly wanted. Would that I could do so, said he woefully. But to talk of that is to talk of an impossibility. I am wedded to you so closely that I feel as if I were the same person. Our essences are one, our bodies and spirits being united. So then I am drawn towards you as by magnetism. And wherever you are, there must my presence be with you. Perceiving how this assurance affected me, he began to chide me most bitterly for my ingratitude. And then he assumed such looks that it was impossible for me longer to bear them. Therefore, I staggered out of the way, begging and beseeching of him to give me up to my fate, and hardly knowing what I said for it struck me that, with all his assumed appearance of misery and wretchedness, there were traits of exultation in his hideous countenance, 
manifesting a secret and inward joy at my utter despair. It was long before I durst look over my shoulder, but when I did so, I perceived this ruined and debased potentate coming slowly on the same path, and I prayed that the Lord would hide me in the bowels of the earth or depths of the sea. When I crossed the Tweed, I perceived him still a little behind me, and my despair being then at its height, I cursed the time I first met with such a tormentor, though on a little recollection it occurred that it was at the blessed time when I was solemnly dedicated to the Lord, and assured of my final election and confirmation by an eternal decree never to be annulled. This being my sole and only comfort, I recalled my curse upon the time, and repented me, O oh, my rashness. After crossing the Tweed, I saw no more of my persecutor that day, and had hopes that he had left me for a season. But alas, what hope was there of my relief after the declaration I had so lately heard? I took up my lodgings that night in a small, miserable inn in the village of Ancrum, of which the people seemed alike poor and ignorant. Before going to bed, I asked if it was customary with them to have family worship of evenings. The man answered that they were so hard set with the world they often could not get time. But if I would be so kind as to officiate, they would be much obliged to me. I accepted the invitation, being afraid to go to rest lest the commotions of the foregoing night might be renewed, and continued the worship as long as in decency I could. The poor people thanked me, hoped my prayers would be heard both on their account and my own, seemed much taken with my abilities, and wondered how a man of my powerful eloquence chanced to be wandering about in a condition so forlorn. I said I was a poor student of theology, on my way to Oxford. They stared at one another with expressions of wonder, disappointment, and fear. I afterwards came to learn that the term theology was by them quite misunderstood and that they had some crude conceptions that nothing was taught at Oxford but the black arts. Which ridiculous idea prevailed all over the south of Scotland? For the present, I could not understand what the people meant, and less so when the man asked me, with deep concern, if I was serious in my attentions of going to Oxford. He hoped not and that I would be better guided. I said my education wanted finishing, but he remarked that the Oxford arts were a bad finish for a religious man's education. Finally, I requested him to sleep with me, or in my room all the night, as I wanted some serious and religious conversation with him, and likewise to convince him that the study of the fine arts though not absolutely necessary, 
were not incompatible with the character of a Christian divine. He shook his head and wondered how I could call them fine arts. Hoped I did not mean to convince him by any ocular demonstration and at length reluctantly condescended to sleep with me and let the lass and wife sleep together for one night. I believe he would have declined it had it not been some hints from his wife, stating that it was a good arrangement, by which I understand there were only two beds in the house, and that when I was preferred to the lass's bed, she had one to shift for. End of section 25